Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Siobhan Barco, the host of New Books and Law. Today we will be discussing Gateway to Freedom, The Hidden History of the Underground Railroad by Eric Foner, DeWitt Clinton Professor of History at Columbia University. Dr. Foner, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Could you begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself, your background, and how you became attracted to studying the Civil War and Reconstruction, slavery, in 19th century America? Well, I grew up in... Uh... Long Island, a suburb of New York City, and when I was uh, a youth, my aim was really to become a scientist. I loved astronomy, physics, math. Um, However, I grew up in a family which was very uh, conscious of history. My father, Jack Foner, was a historian. My uncle, Philip Foner, a very uh, prolific historian. And they sort of represented, I don't know what you might call the old left kind of views of politics and history. Um, And so many aspects of American history that were really not emphasized at all in the mainstream historical writing of, let's say, the 1950s, uh, were second nature to me just because I heard it at home, how central slavery was to the American experience, how important the issue of race was and is in America. Um, W.B. Du Bois, who wrote the great book Black Reconstruction in America, was a friend of my family. Um, So were other distinguished black people. In other words, even though I wasn't that interested in history by osmosis, I learned a lot of history, which was really quite different from what I learned in school. I learned about the, the radicals, the dissenters, the Tom Paines, the Elizabeth Cady Stantons, Frederick Douglasses, Debs, and others. Um, and, um, you know, so that was kind of in my upbringing. Uh, when I came to college at Columbia here in the early 60s, I was actually a science major for two years, but for various reasons I probably because advanced calculus was too hard for me, I switched over to history. And the first course I took was with a great, great teacher, James P. Shenton, here. He was, he's not well known now. He passed away about 10 years ago or maybe more. Uh, he um, was a brilliant lecturer and teacher. So he didn't publish that much. But um, the first course I took was his seminar on, a year-long seminar on slavery, anti-slavery, the coming of the Civil War, Reconstruction. And um, somehow that it shows you how important a, an inspiring teacher can be because that course kind of fixed that as the period that I've devoted the rest of my career to studying. Um, now, it is also true that in the early 60s, the civil rights revolution was reaching its climax. The country was being torn apart by this issue. And many up-and-coming historians like myself wanted to find out where this was coming from in our history. It led many of us to go back and look at the history of slavery, the abolitionist movement, the Civil War, Reconstruction, why it failed, why weren't the constitutional rights guaranteed to blacks at that time actually uh, respected later on. Um, So it was a combination of teaching, personal background, and just the world around me that kind of focused my interest on this period, which I think and still think is so central. And, you know, you don't you can just pick up today's newspapers and you'll see that the issues of that era 150 years ago are still on our agenda today. 
So as long as that's the case, and I'm afraid it will be for a long time in the future, uh, you can't really think about America today without knowing something about the Civil War era, this anti-slavery movement, slavery, and Reconstruction. And those are the kinds of things I've devoted my attention to through my scholarly career. Will you tell us now how you came to write your current work, Gateway to Freedom? Well, you know, I've written quite a few books. Uh, depends how you count them. Somebody said there were 20. That includes edited books. Quite a few. How do you decide what you're going to write about? Um, usually, it's some question, some issue, something that gets your, takes your fancy, and you say, okay, what, what do I need to do to study this? What kind of sources do I need to dig up? What, what kind of resources, what kind of archives, etc.? So you start with a question, and then you find out what you need to what kind of research you have to do to investigate it. In this case, it was the opposite. I started accidentally, serendipitously, with a document. Uh, a, this is several years ago. A student, an undergraduate student at Columbia, a history major, who was also moonlighting as our dog walker, so I saw her every day. Uh, she was writing her senior thesis about Sidney Howard Gay, an abolitionist editor in New York City here. She was interested in his journalistic career. And um, his papers are here in the Rare Books Library at Columbia, about 80 boxes of them. And one day she said to me, you know, Professor Foner, up there in the Sydney Gay Papers, um, there, in Box 72 there's this thing about fugitive slaves. I don't really know what it is, and it's not that relevant to what I'm doing. But you might find it interesting, because she knew, you know, about my teaching and everything. So one day I'm up there. I filed it off in the back of my mind. One day I'm up there, and I say, you know, bring me box 72. Let me see what this is. And it turned out to be two little notebooks, which more recently we have digitalized and put online with a transcript called The Record of Fugitives, a very, very unique document. Um, I commend it to – it's online now. Just Google Record of Fugitives, and you'll find it. Um, basically, for two years, in 1855 and 56, Gay, who, as I said, was a journalist – but was also basically the point man in the Underground Railroad in New York at that time, um, kept these notebooks where he interviewed fugitive slaves who passed through New York City, over 200 men, women, and children in those two years. And he, inter you know, he's a journalist. He wrote down their stories. He, he wrote about their, uh, you know, he asked them, you know, who owned you? What was your life as a slave like? Well, why did you try to escape? But how did you, who helped you? And he also uh, wrote, you know, um, I sent him to Albany, sent this person to New Bedford, Mass. What happened to them? How much money he spent uh, buying them train tickets and things like this. And it's a very unique document. There are one or two uh, examples of this kind of thing. Uh, in Philadelphia, William Still, the head of the uh, Underground Railroad there, uh, kept sort of similar notes, which are now also available online. But uh, it, he wasn't a journalist, and his notes were a little more chaotic, let's say, than Gay's. But anyway, I was fascinated by this, and I knew there was nothing like this relating to the history of New York City at all. And I said, i got to do something with it. But then the question was, well, what exactly? Uh, the first thing I did was try to corroborate the information. Is, is this stuff true? Is it not true? I don't know. So, But you can now start doing research in the U.S. Census, which is online. You can find these owners. You know, guys said, well, I was owned by Colonel Hollingsworth of uh, Hagerstown, Maryland, and he owned 22 slaves. Well, you can go to the 1850 and 1860 Census, and there's Colonel Jacobs Hollingsworth in Hagerstown. And, yeah, he does own 15, 20, 25 slaves. And then there were fugitive slave ads. A lot of the owners of these fugitives put ads in local newspapers, which luckily have now been mostly digitalized, uh, 
you know, they're full of these ads for all sorts of people, you know, ran away. And then they give a physical description of the person and they say reward, you know, and it's the language is often very odd and interesting. You know, $200 to anybody who can get him, get him and bring him back, rewarded $200, $300, something like that. So these, so you can first corroborate these, yeah, this guy did escape on two weeks earlier and there he is in the Baltimore Sun, his owner, trying to get him back. Um, but eventually I decided, you know, as often happens, I moved out from there. I started to, since the Underground Railroad, by definition, involves connections between one place and another, I started to look into Philadelphia, Baltimore, places where these people came from, where they were sent, Albany, Syracuse. So it expanded outward into this history of the help, the assistance to fugitive slaves, but particularly still in New York City, because there is a lot of literature on the Underground Railroad. Some of it grossly exaggerated, I came to conclude. Um, you know, there are some books where you get the impression every house in the North was hiding fugitive slaves at one time or another, which is certainly not the case. Um, but then there are other books which say, no, you know, it didn't exist at all. It's a myth. It's just folklore. But that's obviously not true if you look at this document and others. So um, I tried to trace out these networks in the east, what I call the Metropolitan Corridor, up and down the east coast, but with New York City remaining a central focus. So it kind of expanded. It went backward to the 1840s, the 1830s. I wrote a one chapter just about the history of slavery in New York City and abolition to see what the status was when this, you know, the assistance of fugitive slaves began really in the 1830s. Uh, so it was kind of a detective work doing this. The information is scattered. A lot of it is secret action, of course. Uh, in the book, I say it's sort of like a jigsaw puzzle where a lot of the pieces are missing, but you put it together as best you can. And that's, I tried to give a picture of what, who tried to help fugitive slaves, who they were, and what happened to them. And so, you know, that's how the book evolved. So you just talked a little bit about um, the exaggerations mm-hmm. of the Underground Railroad and also um, a backlash against that. Yeah, well, back, you know, the, one historiography is a subject which people fall asleep when you mention it, but it's important, obviously, and we know historical interpretation is always changing. Um, back in the late 19th century, a professor at Ohio State called Wilbur Siebert, uh, actually in a pioneering method, he sent out questionnaires to a lot of uh, former abolitionists, uh, asking them about what they'd done with the with helping fugitive slaves. And he wrote several books about the Underground Railroad. The problem with Siebert was, and this is really the basis of all future scholarship, the problem was he took everything people said at face value, and uh, people tended to perhaps exaggerate their own role, and particularly exaggerate, you know, the heroes were these white abolitionists, the f- helping helpless fugitives. And, um, you know, so Siebert wrote these books, he listed in one of them over 3,000 what he called agents of the Underground Railroad, which is a gross exaggeration. Uh, he had maps with uh, – he took the railroad metaphor a little too seriously. He had maps of stations and routes as if it was all a organized system, you know. It was more haphazard than that, certainly. And then if you fast forward 50 years or so, you get to Larry Gara in the early 60s who wrote a book was saying, you know, Seabird is a lot of baloney, basically. Yeah, there were some people helping fugitive slaves. They're mostly free blacks in the North, not these white abolitionists. And But it was a very, you know, he just gave scholarly legitimacy to a lot of folklore and reminiscence. And we know that. And it was just a, grossly exaggerated. And most historians accepted that, particularly because this came right on the eve of 
not only the civil rights movement, but a revolution in African-American history where people started emphasizing what we call the agency of African-Americans, not just being helped or oppressed by people, but actors in their own right. And so the idea that it wasn't white abolitionists, it was these free blacks who were doing most of the work struck a chord. So for a generation, there was very little work on the Underground Railroad. But in the last 15 years, let's say, uh, I think it has come back to the fore, uh, particularly through local studies. It's not a big book. There was a book by Fergus Bordewich a few years ago, a General History of the Underground Railroad. But most of the important work is in these local communities, digging deep into local records to see who helped fugitive slaves and how and why, both in the North, but also in the South, Norfolk, Virginia, Baltimore, little networks. As I say, the picture now is these local groups, small, my estimate is in New York City, which had half a million population, you know, in 1850, there were never more than a dozen people at any one time actively engaged in helping fugitive slaves. So it was not a giant operation. But these local networks grew. They rose and fell over time. They never had enough money. Gay's papers are full of stuff. <laughs> they have no money. Uh, but nonetheless, they succeeded in helping a significant number of fugitive slaves get to uh, the north and Canada. How many? Nobody has knows. People always say, well, how many? My estimate, which is a pretty random guess uh, based on knowledge, but I wouldn't you know, bet my house on this, is about 1,000 a year. From 1830 to 1860, about a 1,000 slaves managed to escape. Many more tried and didn't get out, but a 1,000 got out to the north in Canada. That's 30,000, let's say. Is that a lot? Yeah, it's a lot, but there were 4 million slaves, so it's not destroying the system of slavery. But nonetheless, the Underground Railroad did exist. It existed in these local groups which were in connection with each other, and certainly by the 1850s when Gay is writing all this stuff down, uh, it was a pretty well-organized network, although not with the fixed stations and fixed routes and all that kind of thing that Siebert kind of um, uh, argued about. When did New York start making legal procedures to deal with issues involving fugitive slaves? Well, you know, it, it was always recognized in the North that legally the fugitive slaves had to be sent back. Even in the colonial era, colonies did that if they could. I mean, it was rather haphazard. The Constitution, as you well know, says fugitive slaves have to be sent back. I'm, I'm paraphrasing there. It's maddeningly imprecise. It doesn't say who is responsible for sending them back or how, what kind of procedures. Uh, and that becomes a big controversy later on. 1793, the first federal fugitive slave law is passed. Now, that law basically just says an owner can go and grab his fugitive slave and take him back. It puts the onus on the owner. That is not always so easy to do, uh, but it does. And northern states had laws about what would happen if a fugitive was apprehended. Now, the owner can grab him and take him back unless it requires a breach of the peace, which it often does. The guy may resist. Well, then you've got to get a sheriff or a justice of the peace or somebody. Or then what procedure? Then the northern states had laws going way back. Number one, well, should they, who determines, should they give the guy a trial by jury or what kind of procedure is he entitled to a lawyer? What kind of evidence is required that this really is a fugitive slave? Um, and then there were also laws against kidnapping of free blacks because that became a problem. And, you know, a guy comes from the South, comes in and grabs someone and says, this is my fugitive slave and I'm taking him back. Well, what happens if he says, I'm not a slave at all. I was born here. Somebody has to adjudicate that. 
Um, and so there are laws, Pennsylvania, New York, all these states have laws against kidnapping, or at least saying if, you know, again, there has to be a trial by jury. But if somebody is kidnapped, that's a serious crime. And there are, you know, people are apprehended. In fact, the first fugitive slave law, 1793, comes out of a kidnapping case where some Virginians go into Pennsylvania and grab a couple of people and bring them out to Virginia saying, this guy's, these people are my slaves. And they say, no, I'm not your slave. So so this goes, all, Virginia, Pennsylvania seeks to extradite them as kidnappers. Virginia refuses to send these kidnappers back. And that leads to this early national law. So in other words, there are always laws on the book. But as time goes on, some northern states, not all, begin to make the procedure more and more difficult for the owners. They, they, and, and they're time-consuming and costly, and they're trying to kind of impede the um, capture and return of fugitive slaves. They're still on the books, but the procedures become so complicated that it's hard to do. And that is one of the things that leads directly to the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850, which makes it a federal responsibility and overturns all these state laws which are trying to figure out what to do about fugitive slaves. Uh, this comes out of the Prig, you know, legally, the Prig versus Pennsylvania decision of 1842, where the Supreme Court basically said, yeah, fugitives have to be returned, but it's a federal responsibility. It's not a state responsibility. And after that, some states began saying, okay, well, then we're not doing anything. Our law enforcement agents can't assist. You can't lodge a guy in a jail if you capture him. We have nothing to do with it. We're washing our hands. It's a federal responsibility. Well, 1850, it becomes a federal responsibility, and the federal government passes a rather draconian law to take over the uh, the whole procedure of apprehending and adjudicating the condition and sending back into slavery of fugitive slaves. So the legal history of this is murky and complicated, but it is a very important part of American law in the period before the Civil War. What sort of environment? was New York City for fugitive slaves. Uh, why was it only the game? <laughs> well, New York City, I'm a New Yorker, proud of being a New Yorker. We New Yorkers, like many people, have myths about our own city and history. We pride ourselves on our tolerance, our progressivism, our racial uh, heterogeneity, multicultural city. We have our Statue of Liberty welcoming people over there. That's not what it was like before the Civil War, especially for black people. New York was a very unfriendly, it had a significant free black population, but it was a very inhospitable environment for blacks. Um, New York was very closely tied to the slave South. Slavery in New York lasted all the way to 1827 when it was finally abolished. Slavery was a very important part of New York's economy in the colonial era, a gradual emancipation law is passed in 1799, and eventually slavery dies out in 1827. But even at that time, there's still on the books the law of transit, which says that a slave owner can bring a slave into New York City for up to nine months. So that's repealed in 1841. So up to 1841, there were slaves on the streets of New York City, perfectly legally. And even after that, Southerners brought their slaves anyway, in violation of the law. Many Southerners came to New York City. They came as tourists. They came as business people. New York, as I say, was totally tied into the cotton south. New York merchants controlled the cotton trade. New York bankers financed the expansion of slavery. Uh, New York's municipal government was quite pro-Southern and 
officials were perfectly happy to help in the rendition of fugitive slaves. Some officials, including a rather notorious guy named Richard Riker, uh, a local judge, basically, uh, conspired with kidnappers. They would bring a slave, a, a free, sorry, a free person to him, and he would say, yeah, there's a fugitive slave, send him back, and they, they had a legal order. Um, so the law was inhospitable in New York City. The um, environment, political environment, was inhospitable. And then after 1850, it became a very dangerous place for black people. Fugitives, many fugitives who were living here left the city after the federal fugitive slave law was passed. The 1850s is the only decade in the history of New York City where the black population declined from about 13,000 to 11,000 because people just were afraid of being, some of them were fugitive slaves who were being afraid of being captured, and some of them were not fugitive slaves but were afraid of being caught up in this legal system established by the law of 1850, which was completely biased in favor of the owner. The fugitive or alleged fugitive could not testify on his own behalf. The only, and he didn't have a trial by jury or anything, just was brought before a federal commissioner. And the only issue was identification, basically. The owner would bring a document, okay, here's the birth certificate of this guy, he's my slave, or I bought him, here's the bill of sale. And then a lawyer for the alleged fugitive would say, no, 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 this guy, you know, you say he escaped in 1848, but here's two witnesses who say they knew him living in the city in 1845, so he's not your man. Normally, the commissioner would rule in favor of the slave owner. So even if you were free, it was a little tricky. In fact, the very one of the very first cases, under the not from New York, but from Pennsylvania, in, under the fugitive label of 1850, was a guy who was grabbed by kidnappers, basically, brought to a federal commissioner who ordered him sent back, sent to Maryland. When he was sent, when he came back to Maryland, the owner said, this is the wrong guy. You got the wrong guy here. I hired you to get my fugitive. I don't know this guy. So he was sent back to the north. But um, that's unusual, you know. So it was an inhospitable legal environment in the North and certainly in New York City. Now, there were places like Syracuse, New Bedford, Mass., places which was strongly anti-slavery, where it was almost impossible to enforce the fugitive slave law. But New York was not one of those places, New York City. Now, could you tell us about vigilance committees and how these um, vigilance committees provided fugitive slaves or fugitives with legal representation if they were apprehended, and uh, what role do the vigilance committee lawyers played in persuading courts to recognize, um, you mentioned this in your last answer, the freedom principle? Well, you know, vigilance is an interesting word that was used a lot at this time. The, the, I would say, this is open to dispute, the beginning of the Underground Railroad as an organized effort to assist fugitives. There have always been fugitive slaves, and there have always been people who help them individually. But it's in 1835 in New York City that the first vigilance committee is established by David Ruggles, a black abolitionist. And it spreads. It involves both mostly black, but some white abolitionists, too. Um, Vigilance is both a term for keeping your eyes open, I guess, but it's also a mode of action. Um, Being alert, being ready to act at any moment. The initial purpose of the Vigilance Committee was to stop the kidnapping of black people off the streets of New York City, especially children. 
you know, many people have seen the movie a couple of years ago, 12 Years a Slave, about Solomon Northup, who was kidnapped in New York City and spent 12 years in Louisiana as a slave. But it was mostly children, actually. He's an adult man who were grabbed off the streets of New York and taken to a boat and sent to the South and put into slavery. Obviously, this caused tremendous consternation, to say the least, in the black community. And the Vigilance Committee was established to try to stop kidnapping. Uh, But very quickly, it also became involved in giving assistance to fugitive slaves. And it also called for the creation of other Vigilance Committees in other places. And by the 1840s, you've got Vigilance Committees in Albany, in uh, Boston, in uh, Philadelphia, in Syracuse, in many other places. And so the network of groups assisting fugitives, this is what the Underground Railroad really is, network of local groups. But it also includes some uh, rural people, farmers who are not members of this urban vigilance committee who are also helping. Um, so the vigilance committees are very important. But what's interesting about them is they operated both above ground and below ground at the same time, or you might say both legally and illegally at the same time. To assist a fugitive was illegal, no question about it. On the other hand, to help someone's being kidnapped is perfectly legal. And they also went to court and they filed petitions and they tried to get the legislature to pass laws. So they were operating at both levels, underground and overground, uh, at the same time. Um, and they provided legal representation. There weren't a hell of a lot of lawyers in New York City willing to do this. There were only a few, but they worked very avidly for the um, Vigilance Committee. In the 18, late 1840s, 1850s, the key abolitionist lawyer in New York City along these lines was John Jay II, the grandson of the first Chief Justice, the son of uh, William Jay, who was a prominent abolitionist and judge uh, in Bedford, New York, and John Jay II, another lawyer and a graduate of Columbia, where I teach. Uh, I say that with some pride, although I should add that he's the only abolitionist that I could find who graduated from Columbia in any year before the Civil War. But anyway, um, um, Jay went to court and some of the others, there were a few others before, but it was hard work and usually they lost because, as I say, it was normally just a question of identification, but sometimes they won. And where they won was in getting courts to recognize what you mentioned as the freedom principle. What is the freedom principle? Well, it goes back to the Somerset case in England in 1772, I think it was, where uh, Lord Mansfield, the Chief Justice of England, uh, what he actually said is a little vague because they didn't actually have reports of cases in any great detail. We just know the outcome. James Somerset, a slave from the West Indies, who was actually then brought to Boston and from Boston to England. And then when his owner wanted to go back to the West Indies with him, he sued or got a lawyer to sue in court saying, residence in England has made me free. I'm no longer a slave. In other words, the the principle is slavery is only a creature of local law. Once a slave leaves the jurisdiction that has the, where the law makes him a slave, he reverts to the natural condition of mankind, which is freedom. And that's what uh, Judge Mansfield ruled, that in England there is no slavery, and therefore this guy's not a slave. That didn't free the slaves in the West Indies. It didn't free the slaves in Virginia or Massachusetts. But it said that an owner, that a, now this does not apply to fugitive slaves. It's slaves who are voluntarily brought by their owners into free territory, okay, become free. That's the freedom principle. It begins to become part of the common law 
in the colonies and in the U.S. as well as in England. It gives the British the right to pat themselves on the back. I've lived in England. I love the British, but they can be when they get on their high horse, they can be a little annoying. And they pat, oh, we're so free, the freeborn Englishmen. But you know, hey, there were hundreds of thousands of slaves in the British West Indies. That didn't. This had nothing to do with them. And the British ships were still transporting hundreds of thousands of slaves from Africa to the New World. That didn't seem to undercut their claim that they were the freeborn Englishmen. That didn't apply to Africans. But anyway, we'll give uh, Somerset, I mean, uh, Judge Mansfield, uh, his uh, due on this. So the freedom principle, then the question is, what does this apply to the northern states? And little by little, by the 1840s, really, it is applied in the north, especially as laws about the right of transit are passed. So in New York City, as I said, after 1841, it is illegal to bring a slave into New York. Now, the Vigilance Committee and uh, Jay were involved in one of the key cases involving this, which was the Lemon case in the 1850s. Lemon, I can't remember his first name, was a Southern, a Virginia slave owner who, with a whole entourage, his family, his, his children, his wife, and a bunch of slaves, eight or nine slaves, was moving from Virginia to Texas. He'd bought up a plantation down there. But... Um, you couldn't get from Virginia to Texas. To do so, you had to come to New York and get a ship from New York to Texas, around Florida, etc. Okay, so he could, they all come up to New York. But this is the 1850s, 1852. It is no longer legal to bring slaves into New York. And somebody connecting with the vigil, somebody says to these slaves, you know, I could get this vigilance committee to make you free. And in fact, Louis Napoleon, who is a black man, a very interesting character, who is the right-hand man of Sidney Howard Gay in this abolitionist office, who is the point guy on the streets. It's Louis Napoleon who's out there at the docks looking for slaves who have hidden away on ships. He's out at the railroad depot meeting slaves. Fugitive slaves have been sent up from Philadelphia. Um, Lemon, uh, uh, Napoleon goes to court and gets a in, writ of habeas corpus for these um, eight or nine slaves. And uh, it becomes uh, Napoleon v. Lemon is the case. In fact, in one of the appeals, uh, just uh, the lawyer for Virginia says to uh, John Jay, the lawyer for the slaves, who is this Louis Napoleon who brought this case? Is he the emperor of France? And Napoleon says, no, he's a, uh, no, no. John Jay says, no, no, he's a much better man. Great reply. But anyway, they won. And these, the court says, no, these guys are free. That's the freedom principle. If you come a slave who comes other than a fugitive into a free jurisdiction becomes free. Now, of course, that's part of the issue of the Dred Scott decision in 1857, and um, which says that kind of fudged this question it, because Dred Scott was a slave in uh, Missouri who had been brought by his owner into Illinois, a free state, and then Wisconsin territory where slavery is prohibited by the Missouri Compromise of Congress, and then back to Missouri. And then he frees, sues for his freedom, saying, hey, I was in free territory, I'm free. And eventually Dred Scott, the court said, no, you're not free. Why? Well, they give a whole lot of reasons. But as to Illinois, they say, forget it, we don't care about Illinois because you're back in Missouri. So they fudge that issue. As to Wisconsin, you weren't really free there anyway because the Missouri Compromise is unconstitutional. Slave owners have a right to bring their slaves into any territory. Not a state, a territory at that time. Okay? Well, 
some people, including Abraham Lincoln in the late 1850s, said this Lemon case, which was going up through the appeals process, would be the next Dred Scott. It would be the occasion for the Supreme Court to say, now states cannot prohibit owners from bringing slaves in. We know that territories can't prohibit them, according to the uh, uh, Dred Scott decision, but that didn't say anything about states. But they were afraid they'd get a law saying, they would get a decision saying, no, slave owners have a right to bring their slaves into any state they want. But then the Civil War broke out, so it became moot. There was no decision up to the 1850s. So the freedom principle is a very controversial and important part of um, the legal debate here about slavery and its the extent of slave law. Does it spread into the North, even after the North has abolished slavery? Could you tell me about some of the other cases in your book, such as the Hamlet case or the Burns case? Yeah, well, the, the, even though New York uh, is not a part of most of the histories of the Underground Railroad, the first person arrested under the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850 was James Hamlet in New York City. First application of that law was in New York City. Hamlet was a slave from uh, Maryland. He had escaped a couple of years earlier. He was living with his wife and a couple of children in Maryland, uh, sorry, in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. He was working in a shop in New York, Manhattan. Two days after President Fillmore signed that law, he was arrested. His owner knew he was in New York, but the slave catchers who he had hired to get him back said, wait until this new law goes into effect. Two days after it did, they grabbed him, brought him to a U.S. commissioner. U.S. commissioner said, oh, yeah, you're, goodbye. Within 24 hours, he was back in Maryland. This, this case did not, you know, they didn't mess around with these cases. Brought him back. After an hour or two, the commissioner said, all right, you're back. And federal marshals took him back to Maryland. But while the owner was in New York or his representative, he said, you know, this is a pain in the neck. Uh, if you if you abolitionists want to buy his freedom, I'll sell him for $800. And so the black community of New York raised this $800. They sent a leading uh, New York merchant down. And within a week, Hamlet is back in New York. Having been his freedom, having been purchased, that's perfectly legal. Guy can sell his slave. So there was a big celebration in City Hall Park, a big black and some white abolitionists kind of rally, and Hamlet was hailed, you know, and so he's back as a free man. That was great. But the merchant community of New York, even though it's all legal, the merchant community didn't want to give the impression to the South that the fugitive slave law could not be enforced in New York City, and so they formed a group called the uh, Union Safety Committee to encourage and assist in the apprehension of fugitive slaves. In fact, in the Lemon case, as I mentioned before, the lawyer for the Lemons was paid for by the Union Safety Committee to show that New York City is right on the side of these slave owners. So the Hamlet case had a dual ending. On the one hand, he became free in the end. On the other hand, uh, it actually led to the creation of a group to further enforce the few help further enforce the fugitive slave law in new york city the burns case is a interesting case that's in massachusetts boston we think of boston as a center of abolitionism which it was but there were plenty of pro-southern people there too burns is another fugitive i think from virginia uh who's apprehended in boston in early 1854 and uh there had been a couple of years before a fugitive in Boston, who was captured and then rescued by a mob, basically, of free blacks and sent off to Canada, grabbed out of the courthouse. So in uh, in the Burns case, they they ringed the courthouse with, with 
uh, so, uh, police. There were no, there was no way of uh, rescuing Anthony Burns, and the commissioner said, "You're a um, fugitive, and uh, you got to be sent back to um, Virginia." And it required a unit of federal troops to march uh, Burns down the main street to the dock surrounded by soldiers to put him on a boat back to Virginia. And this alarmed a lot of people in the North, even who weren't really anti-slavery, but the notion of federal government intervening in so heavy-handed a way in defense of slavery uh, seemed to reinforce the abolitionist claim that the federal government was in the hands of slave owners, which is one of the big arguments. What kind of legal penalties did those who aided runaway slaves face in slave states? Well, you know, it was certainly illegal to help fugitive slaves, both North and South. In the South, it was the, the penalties were very severe, as you can well imagine. This was considered a very dangerous crime. And uh, people who were apprehended were sentenced to long prison sentences. One guy in um, one ship captain, Bayless, I think his name was, who was caught hiding some fugitives on his ship, was sentenced, I don't know, 50 years in jail. Uh, he was jailed in the late 1850s. He remained in jail in Richmond, Virginia, until the end of the Civil War, when Union troops liberated the city and let him out of jail. Um, uh, Charles Torrey, who was arrested and put in the Baltimore, Pen the Maryland State Penitentiary in Baltimore, died in prison in the 1840s. He had been apprehended, helping some fugitives escape out of Washington, D.C., uh, into Maryland. Um, so it was dangerous. Um, but... Um, and out in Kentucky and other places, there were others. In the North, it was illegal, but and there were people uh, put in prison. There was a farmer, uh, John Van Zant, out in Ohio, who actually was sentenced to jail for helping fugitives. And that went all the way to Supreme Court in the Van Zant case in the 1840s, and they uh, upheld his uh, sentence. But it is interesting, considering that there were at least some people helping fugitive slaves, that mo there weren't that many prosecutions in the North of people for assisting. For example, in New York City, mm, I'd say people knew that Sidney Howard Gay was helping these fugitives. It wasn't publicized exactly, but certainly people on the street knew, black people knew, if you run into a fugitive slave, send him to Sidney Howard Gay's office. They knew how to help people. They'd get Napoleon down here to help him out, you know. But the authorities did not arrest them. They, I think they didn't want to make martyrs out of them. They didn't want to have a big trial which would um, maybe make create a lot of sympathy for these people. So on the one hand, it was illegal, and the federal fugitive slave law had penalties for helping a fugitive. In fact, it had penalties for refusing to help capture a fugitive. If you were a uh, bystander and a federal marshal came up to you and said, I'm uh, chasing this guy over here, you've got to help me, you're deputized now, and you said, you know, I don't really feel like doing that. You're committing a federal crime by refusing to help. So, you know, there were possibilities, but um, not very few people. And when they did try to enforce the law in places like Syracuse, the so-called Jerry Rescue, where a mob rescued a guy from a courthouse, uh, several of them were indicted, but juries refused to convict uh, Christiana, Pennsylvania, where a mob rescued some fugitive slaves from a sheriff and an owner, and an owner was killed in that. Uh, and a whole bunch of people were indicted for treason, which is a fairly strong uh, charge. Um, they were not indicted. They were not convicted either. So when you had local communities which are sympathetic to the anti-slavery movement, it was hard to enforce. But so it is interesting that 
rather few people were actually uh, punished legally in the North for assisting fugitives. But in the South, it was quite dangerous. Do you think that the unwillingness of local juries to convict persons who took part in widely publicized rescues to influence congressional debates over slavery? Well, one of the main arguments in my book is that, you know, is that the fugitive issue was a major catalyst of the coming of the Civil War. And even though only a thousand a year got out, it wasn't destroying the system of slavery, it became more and more of a political, of one of the main contributors to the growing sectional divide. Um, and some of these highly publicized incidents, like the rescues of fugitives from courthouses and the inability to convict people, and in some places, the very public assistance, like in Syracuse, the Underground Railroad wasn't underground at all. It was totally open. The The chief guy there, Jermaine Logan, who himself was a fugitive slave, he advertised in the newspapers. He said, you know, I'm the head of the Underground Railroad. Anyone sees any fugitive, please send them to my house. And by the way, if there's any slave catchers, we're going to run them out of town, you know, when we find out who they are. Nobody did anything to him in Syracuse. But Southerners saw this and they said, you know, we cannot trust the North. This is in our Constitution, our right to get our fugitives back. This is not a kind of murky political question like, does Congress have the right to prohibit slavery in the territories? There are arguments on both sides. There is no argument that Southerners are supposed to get their fugitive slaves back. That's in the Constitution itself. It's in the federal law. And yet, there, there were many fugitives sent back. On the other hand, there was many cases of resistance and of direct violation of the law by the Underground Railroad. And this is debated in Congress all the time. And when the South finally secedes, this is listed, this, the, the difficulty of getting back fugitives is listed as one of the reasons for secession. If you read South Carolina's Declaration of the Causes of Secession, December 1860. Now, not a lot of fugitives got out of South Carolina. It's too far. Most of the fugitives came from the Upper South, from Maryland, from Kentucky, from Virginia, for obvious reasons. It's closer to the North. Um, but um, that's the longest, the longest complaint against the North in the South Carolina Declaration of the Causes of Secession is the impeding the ability to get fugitive slaves back. So this is a major point of sectional conflict in the decade leading up to the Civil War. In what ways did resistance to fugitive slave law force ordinary Northerners who had no connection with the abolitionist movement to confront the question of the relationship between individual conscience and legal obligation? What were some famous politicians, such as Lincoln or Seward's, take on this issue? Right. I mean, the, the, the fugitive slave issue, as I said before, alarmed the South, but it also had a big impact in the North because it put on the agenda this perennial issue, which is still in our lives today, of, you know, what do you do when faced with an unjust law? Uh, there's no simple answer to that. Civil disobedience has a long history in the United States, obviously. Um, and, you know, I would say probably most Northerners said, look, you have to, they believe in the rule of law. You have to abide by the rule of law. But there were many who said, no, in this case, I cannot. If confronted with a fugitive slave, humanity sort of, even, I don't care what my position on slavery is, humanity suggests I ought to help this person. And many people did who were not abolitionists when in an individual case like that. Um, but when you get to political leaders, it's tricky. Radical Republicans, abolitionists said this law is just unjust, illegitimate. 
William Seward, who uh, was the senator from New York uh, State at this point, in 1850, when the fugitive slave law was being debated in Congress, he said, you know, he used this famous phrase, there is a higher law. The Southerners said, well, this is in the Constitution. And he said, there is a higher law than the Constitution, a higher law. What, the law of Christianity, the law of morality, the law of justice. And that overrides the fugitive slave clause of the Constitution. Well, Southerners have found that a lot. If that's the case, well, what um, what security do we have for any part of the Constitution if someone come along and say there's a higher law than that? On the other hand, you get a guy like Lincoln who hated slavery. There's no question about that, but deeply believed in the rule of law. And he absolutely, he said, I do not agree with the higher law of Seward. There is no higher law than the Constitution. And we must, in a famous letter of 1855, Lincoln wrote to a friend of his, he said, you know, I hate to see these fugitives hunted down, but I bite my lip and keep silent. Why does he keep silent? Because it is the law. Lincoln was a very talented lawyer. He never did anything to help fugitive slaves using his law as a part of his law career. His own, his partner, Herndon, did, went to court. But Lincoln said, you know, I, I'm sorry, the law is these guys have to be returned. So the, Lincoln and Seward suggest the difference of opinion. Even though they're both Republicans and both anti-slavery people, um, the difference of opinion. The most Lincoln would say was the fugitive slave law should be amended to give better guarantees that a free person is not caught up and sent into slavery. Well, most people would say, of course, a free person shouldn't be sent into slavery. That wasn't a very radical position. But um, that's the furthest he would go on the fugitive slave question. All right. Well, to conclude, I'd love to know what you're working on now. (laughs) I'm not working on anything now. I'm uh, relaxing a little bit. Um, I'm still, you know... I'm still going around giving lectures about this book. Moreover, as you are well aware, the 150th, now that we have finished the 150th anniversary of the Civil War, the 150th anniversary of Reconstruction is upon us. So I'm going around giving some lectures now about the 13th Amendment, which whose 150th anniversary we will mark in December, or more generally about what we just think about Reconstruction. So I'm fairly busy, but I'm sure some idea will pop into my head one of these days. Sounds great. I want to thank you for being on the show today. Okay, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.